So let me tell you a little bit about the 2016 sermon series. I know all of you have been waiting anxiously for this moment. Where are we headed this year in our sermon series? Well, we're going to take the, the tagline, the new tagline of Green Tree uh, that we uh, introduced to you last May, and we're going we're gonna to pull that apart uh, section by section. So between now and Easter Sunday, Easter's early this year, it's the end of March, we're going to be looking at our, at our tagline, Dig In. After Easter, through the spring and up into the early summer, right around uh, our 2028 Sunday in mid-June, we'll be talking about Branch Out. And that part of the series, we'll be looking at how do believers, uh, disciples of Jesus, interact with our culture and the community around us. We'll look at some of the topics of our day that are pressing in on, and raising serious questions about faith and life. And then we'll have our summer series, which will be a, a different topic altogether. And then the fall, we'll come back and we'll look at Live It Up. And we'll be looking there particularly about how we live emotionally, how we live intellectually, how we live spiritually, how do we live this life to the fullest that uh, Jesus has called us to. So that's how the series are going to break down this year. Now, who was here on Sunday, December the 27th? If you were here a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, you remember, raise your hand, okay? Yeah, raise your hand. You preached the sermon. So Steve Hughes, he's like, oh yeah, that's right, I was here. Um, Steve Hughes preached, all, he preached dig in, branch out, and live it up on one Sunday. So if you want a free pass for the entire year, go back and listen to the podcast and, and you'll get it all. I'm a little slower on the uptake. It's going to take me an entire year to get through this. But it, seriously, if you weren't here on the 27th, and you want to listen to a really great sermon, go back and listen to that sermon. But that's where we're headed. So dig in. What are we going to dig into? Well, we're going to dig in to the book of Colossians. We're going to dig in to the person of Jesus Christ. But for the next 10 Sundays or there, thereabouts up until Easter, uh, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as Chip mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're going to be wrestling with this question of the preeminence of Jesus. And that's not a word you use every day, but we'll come back to that in just a minute. So typically, I give you the sermon in a sentence, right? I try to say kind of, here's where we're going this morning. I'm going to give you the series in a sentence. Here's where we're headed for the next few weeks. As we dig into the preeminence of Jesus, his lordship, which is a synonym for the word preeminence, will transform our lives to reflect his character. So we dig into the preeminence of Jesus, his lordship will transform our lives to reflect his character. So what we're going to do today is we're going to just kind of do an introduction to this series. So you can turn your Bibles to Colossians, but we don't have one particular series set of verses we're going to look at. We're going to kind of bounce around a little bit so that you can get an understanding just out of the gate, out of how the book was put together, what are Paul's major concerns, and where we'll be heading in the next few weeks. The overarching theme of Colossians is the preeminence of Jesus. Now, I, I saw Chip early in the service said, now who knows what that word means? That's not a word you use normally. I, I would think I would bet the mortgage on my house that none of you use the word preeminence in a normal conversation this week unless you were quoting this particular passage or talking theologically in some way. Say, yeah, let's chat about preeminence. It's not a word that's necessarily common with us today. So let's look at it. Just go to the Oxford Dictionary. Look at the definition because it, what, it, what it means in Scripture is exactly how uh, you see it on the screen right now. Preeminence means the fact of surpassing all others. 
superiority. And then you see the synonyms there, uh, supremacy, predominance, eminence, importance, prestige, stature, fame, so on and so forth. When we say that Jesus is preeminent, what we're saying is something very profound and fundamentally important to our faith. We're digging in here because this is one of the key questions in all of Scripture. Who is Jesus and what does he matter in my life? Well, the way we're going to do this this morning by way of introduction is we're going to begin by reading in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, which if you, if you, if you went, and bought, went out and bought a commentary, I'm going to save you the money, if you went and bought out a book on Colossians and it said, where are the key verses in Colossians that kind of give you the, the overarching theme? These are the verses. Now, the way we're going to read them this morning is typically I read the scripture. We're not going to do that today. We're actually going to read this. We're going to read it together twice. We're going to go through one time and then go right back and go through it again. And we're going to read out loud together. And I'm going to ask all of you if you would please stand with me as we read God's word. Okay, you ready to go? Here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. All right, let's go back to the top. Let's do it one more time together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Thank you. You can sit down. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have just read something about you that, if true, is a game changer. If what Paul says is accurate, then it means you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It means that whether we believe in you or don't believe in you, you are the one who speaks with all authority and with the power of God. Lord, we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world where there are many small kingdoms, some as small as our own homes, where we are uh, arrogant rulers of those around us, some as big as entire nations of people. Lord, when we possess authority, we tend to become tyrants and possessive and selfish. What you do with your preeminence is something radically different than we could even begin to imagine or think. So, Father, as we dig in to Jesus, as we dig into this question of his preeminence, we pray that your spirit and your word would teach us. Lord, what I have to say is completely irrelevant. It's of no weight or importance. It's of no more importance than what anybody else would say. 
but your eternal word stands forever. And it is that that transforms and changes our lives. So, Father, we pray that we would submit our will to yours, our mind to yours, that we would worship you intellectually for the next few moments, that you would forgive me my sin, that I wouldn't stand in the way of what you want any of us to hear or understand today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So just to be clear from the very outset, uh, to make no bones about what Paul says here in Colossians and what I firmly believe is, is God's truth for us, the definition of preeminence. Jesus is, by definition, preeminent over all things, which means, therefore, that Jesus has the final say in all things. Now, think about that for just a minute. You got to think about that globally or universally. It means that Jesus has the final say in everything that happens in human history. But boil it down and make it personal as well. It means that Jesus has the final say in your life and in my life. Paul doesn't say if we believe in Jesus, he will become preeminent. Jesus doesn't say if we cho- Paul doesn't say if we choose to make Jesus Lord, then he can be preeminent in our lives. Paul says, doesn't matter what you believe, Jesus is preeminent. Every person in the world has to wrestle with that question. That's an ast- or that statement, that's an astounding statement. That Jesus literally has final say in your life and in my life. That Jesus has final say in the way I go about my work. That Jesus actually has final say and authority about how I go about my rest as well. That every human relationship in which I engage, Jesus has the final word on my thoughts and my attitude and my actions in those human relationships. The way I go about my work, the way I go about my marriage, raising my children, now being a grandpa at the age in which I find myself. The way in which I uh, handle my finances, what I decide is moral and immoral. Jesus has the final word in all of that. If that doesn't at least get your attention a little bit, if not upset you or perhaps bother you, I would suggest that you're not thinking very seriously about the topic. Because I can stand here before you this morning and say, as a person who's been a Christian a long, long time, in fact, a lot longer, unfortunately, than a lot of you have been alive who are in this room, I struggle with the preeminence of Jesus in my life. I would like to say that Jesus is Lord of every aspect of my life. And I think there are moments when he is. I think there are moments when I get it and I understand it. And I see how his preeminence is for my good. It actually is life-giving to me. He actually uses his power to love me better than anybody else could. And then I have moments where I turn my back on it. I go my own way. If you're not unsettled, By the preeminence of Jesus, I don't think you're thinking seriously enough about it. So for the next 10 weeks, I want us to think seriously about the preeminence of Jesus because that means he has the final say in all things. So for Paul, what does this word mean and why is it important? Well, first of all, for Paul, it certainly was a theological truth to be grasped. Paul wants to make sure that that people understand it. And so we're going to take some time this morning to kind of pick it apart and and make sure we can at least lay a foundation for what this word preeminence is all about and, and the weight thereof. Because Paul also understood it, not just to be a theological truth about Jesus to be grasped, but he also understood that once we grasp it, it needed to become the controlling influence in the life of every believer and every church community. Paul understood that the preeminence of Christ is a good thing for you and me individually, 
but he also understands the life of the church collectively. Green Tree is a stronger church the more Jesus is preeminent in my life. Jesus, Green Tree is a stronger church the more Jesus is preeminent in your life. This is not just about individual discipleship. It's also about the health of our spiritual family. And the less seriously we take the preeminence of Christ, the less healthy we will be as a church. So it's both individual and collective in order that Jesus would be the controlling power in my life. In fact, if you go back to why the book of, or the letter of Colossians was written in the first place, and you study it a little bit, you'll, you'll see if you read a commentary, the, the phrase, uh, the, the uh, Colossian heresy. You know, what was Paul writing about in the first place? Well, he was writing back in his day to address this, this uh, idea that Jesus was not preeminent. That he was a good man, he was a good prophet, he was a, he was a good teacher, he had a lot of great things to say, but he's not king of kings and lord of lords in particular, he was not God in the flesh. And what Jesus said about himself and what, what all of scripture says about Jesus is that he is 100% God and he is 100% man. And when he walked on the face of the earth, he was 100% man and 100% God. And some in the Colossian church began to teach other things. And they began to deny the preeminence of Jesus. Therefore, Paul thought it was very important that he cover this topic and cover it thoroughly. And you know what? In 2,000 years, not very much has changed. So there's a lot of great things said about Jesus. If you, if you read scholars and, and philosophers, and their, their, there's a lot of people say, you know, when Jesus said, love your enemy, wasn't that a great thing? But when you get down to the preeminence of Jesus, when you get down to him being Lord of every level of your life, our culture denies this. Our culture rejects out of hand the notion that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and that we should bow the knee to him. But not only does our culture deny the preeminence of Jesus, but our own sinful nature does so as well. As I said a few moments ago, I'd love to stand before you and tell you, I, I always live with the preeminence of Jesus controlling my life, but it just would be a flat out lie. It wouldn't be true. I struggle with that. Why? Because am I saved? Am I, am I a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? I believe that with all my heart, but I'm not home yet. And I still have this old man in, inside of me that wants to go my own way and do my own selfish will. And those two things struggle with one another, just as, as I know they do in your life. And so we're not home yet. We, we, we've got this sinful nature. And so those two things together, our culture saying, Jesus is Lord. No, it's set that aside. And, and our own tendency to, to want to do that from time to time means that we need to be trained. We need to be, we need to be steeped in this truth. We need to study it with, a, with an open mind and a full heart, asking God to, to help us practice the, putting this into, in, into our lives and living in this way. Let me give you an anecdotal example of, of, of this. I was talking to a young man over Christmas, and we were talking about human sexuality. And we were talking about God's correct expression, the way God created us to express ourselves sexually. And if Jesus is preeminent, he has the final say over our sexuality. And he says it for good, and he says it for our protection. He says it because he loves us so much he died for us. So he's not trying to rain on the picnic. He's actually trying to make it that expression of our lives the best it could possibly be. And so we're having this conversation, and, and clearly our culture thinks differently than what is in Scripture. Our sexual expression is to be in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. I, uh, we're, when we get into to a branch out, we're actually going to have a couple sermons on it, but it boils down to that. Now, our culture rejects that. 
out of hand. Our culture wouldn't, if you say that, you walk up to, the, to somebody on the street corner and you grab and say, hey, let me tell you what God says about this, they would laugh at you. And if you said, now I want you to build your life around this truth, they would laugh at you even, even more. So here's something that our culture rejects out of it. So having this conversation with this young man, and we're talking about it biblically, and we're not, we're not arguing about it, we're, we're agreeing with it, but his conclusion was this, I'm done with that conversation. Nobody in my generation believes what you just said. Now, I understand that's an overstatement. There are plenty of Christians in his generation as, as well as him. But his point was the people, the guys that I live with in my house, the people I work with in my office, the, the vast majority of people I know, they're not even going to have that conversation. So I'm not going to go there. Now, the first part of the statement, I, I get, I understand. But I'm not going to go there is living as if Jesus is not preeminent. And friends, you and I do that all the time. I'm not picking on that guy. He was just honest enough to share how, how he really felt about it. He's like, I, I'm not even going to bring this up with my friends. It's just, it, it, they're, they're so far past us, I, I would look like a complete idiot. And yet you and I make that kind of decision to kind of set the preeminence of Jesus aside on a regular basis. So Paul says it's important that we understand it theologically. It's important that, that it becomes the controlling influence of our lives. It's important because, because a lot of things are going to try to push us in a different direction. So what is this theological truth? That, that Paul wants us to grasp about the preeminence of Jesus. And, I, and I'm going to put it in two, uh, two different uh, uh, parts. Preeminence number one is really the notion that Jesus, God in the flesh, is creator and Lord of everything. In the verses that we read earlier, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When you think of, of Paul's first notion of preeminence of Jesus, it's this, that Jesus is God in the flesh, creator and Lord of everything. But it goes beyond that. God doesn't just lord over everything. He's also actively at work in his creation. And so the second part of preeminence is the notion that Jesus is God reconciling all things to himself. That there's something broken about this world and God is redeeming it. He's correcting it. And he's doing that because it gives him great pleasure and joy to do so. So if we had, if we had kept reading this morning... In chapter 1, Paul writes about Jesus, for in Jesus, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why? Why was the fullness of God pleased to dwell? What was God after? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Jesus uses his preeminence, his authority, his power for reconciliation. He doesn't just sit back and say, boy, it's too bad it's broken. I hope you guys can figure it out. He gives everything of himself in order that in all things we could be reconciled to God. So when we talk about the preeminence of Jesus, it's very active and it's very personal. If that's the case, then how does Paul kind of play this out? How does he want us to apply this truth of preeminence? And does he want us to kind of get in the corner and cower with fear and hope that we don't do anything to upset this Jesus who is preeminent over all things and just kind of keep your head down and your mouth shut and hopefully you won't get in too much trouble? It's a radically different approach. What, Paul, what we're going to see in Colossians, what Paul is writing about, 
is, is the means that my daily life, my thoughts, my words, and my, and my choices could be glorifying to God because Jesus is preeminent in my life. And I think he points this out in three ways. And I've already touched on, on one of them. I actually touched on all three, but I want to come back to them for just a minute. The first is this. Paul says you've got to have a proper theology. You've got to, you've got to make sure that you're thinking the right way. So in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul, who, by the way, did not go and start the church in Colossae. This is, you know, when you read about Ephesians and you read about Corinthians and you read about all these Thess- uh, Thessalonians, uh, Philippians, those are all churches that Paul started. Paul didn't start Colossians. Somebody else started it. So he's talking about ever since they heard about them. So from the day we heard that you guys were fellow disciples in Jesus, what have we done? We have not ceased praying for you, asking that you may be what? Filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, increasing in the knowledge of God. Theology is important, friends. What we believe about God, what we understand scripture to teach about God is important to be deeply embedded in our soul so that when we look at our world, when we look at our own life, whether we're looking in the mirror or we're looking at our marriage or our parenting or being a child or in the classroom or in our work or in our neighborhood, when we look at this world, We look at it through the lens of the preeminence of Jesus in order that we can discern, in order that we can understand the true condition of what's going on around us. I'm a pretty big Clint Eastwood fan. He's almost as good as John Wayne was when I was a kid growing up. And now Clint Eastwood's kind of an old guy too. I'm not sure who the next generation I'm supposed to look up to. But there was this, it was actually a bad Clint Eastwood movie. It wasn't very good. Came out in the early 80s. It was called Heartbreak Ridge. I'm not recommending that you go see Heartbreak Ridge. Um, But in this movie, Clint Eastwood plays a Marine uh, Corps sergeant who's in charge of a recon platoon that's gone bad. So these are supposed to be like elite, top-notch Marine Corps fighter guys, and they've just kind of blown up. So he's been brought in to kind of straighten them out and, and get things going the right way, right, the Marine Corps way. And he's in trouble because he's kind of freelance, and he's kind of doing it in ways that, that his commander doesn't like. And so he's standing in front of his commander in one scene, and his commander's like, who gave you the right to do this and that, and why aren't you kind of doing things by the book? And he said, I'm kind of experimenting with these guys because I can't fix it if I don't know what's broken, right? Take that truth and apply it to the preeminence of, of, of Jesus. The more you understand about God, the more you understand about his love for you, his hatred of sin and what it does to this world, his commitment to bring reconciliation and redemption, and ultimately that we would all stand before him in the righteousness of Christ. It's because it, the, the, the more you know of that, the more you're steeped in that, the more you, when, when it's broken, you'll see it. When, when there's something other than that, you'll know it. And that's where Paul takes us to. He lays the foundation of a proper theology. And then he says, there's some things you need to turn away from. There's some sinful patterns that you need to avoid. Well, how do I know they're sinful? Well, I know they're sinful by having a proper theology, by understanding God. The first way of wrong thinking, he points out in chapter 2, verse 8. Kind of talking about about this notion that there's some kind of deeper secret mystery. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. An empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How am I going to see to it that I'm not tripped up in my understanding of the preeminence of Jesus? It's because I study his word. It's because I know him intimately. It's because I've committed myself to not just know him from a distance, but to know him close up, personal, so that his truth can invade every part of my being. 
But Paul says it's not just turning away from wrongful thinking, but it's also turning away from wrongful living. He says in chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16, he says this, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard the festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, insisting on asceticism, going into details about visions puffed up without reasons. Let me, let me boil this down. This is, this is a, uh, a, a morality that comes from uh, religious rule-keeping. The notion that God loves me because I do the right things, because I obey the rules, because I, so I'm, I'm making sure I don't eat the wrong things or drink the wrong things. I'm, I'm making sure I wouldn't do anything a good Christian wouldn't do, and therefore God's going to love me, right? It's a quid pro quo. As soon as I do all the right stuff, God's going to pay me back by really just you know, taking care of me and bringing me into heaven. And Paul says, something that looks really good on the outside can kill you on the inside. But if you don't have a proper theology, you're not going to be able to turn away. There are plenty of people who come to church on Sunday and actually believe that part of coming to church is earning their salvation. I I hate to be the one to break it to you. Actually, I'm happy to be the one to break it to you. God's never going to love you because you go to church. God's never going to love you because you put money in the little offering churches on your way in and on your way out. God's never going to love you because you help an old lady across the street. But he's never going to stop loving you or not love you because you have a lustful thought or you hate somebody in your heart, even if you never speak it, or you disobey your parents when their backs are turned and you know you're going to get away with it, or you yell at your child and you don't go back and apologize when you know you are wrong, God's not going to turn his back on you. Why? Because it's not about keeping the rules. It's about Jesus going to the cross for a bunch of people that couldn't. It's as big an abomination to God or worse when we replace the cross of Christ with our good efforts. But Paul says you got to be careful to know that. If you don't know that, you could, you could live the wrong way and actually do a whole bunch of good things for a whole lot of people. But he also says there is a wrong way of living that is, that is just kind of coming into the world and, and living the way the world says to live in this worldly evil. And so in, in chapter 3, he begins to talk about things we need to put to death or things we need to take off. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And that, that list is a little bit longer than that I've, I've, I've shortened it just a little bit this morning for our purposes. But Paul says we need to turn away from that worldly evil, from practicing behaviorally and thinking that those things are okay. How do you know to turn away from those things if you don't know the preeminence of Jesus in your life? So Paul says proper theology says let's turn away from some things, but he also says let's turn to something. Let's turn to the glory of the gospel of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 12. Turn to godliness in all things. Put on that. One of our sermons in early March is going to be how disciples of Jesus should, should dress properly. It's got nothing to do whether you wear blue jeans at church or you don't wear blue jeans at church or dress up or don't dress up. It's this, right? Put on them. How are we going to clothe ourselves? As God's chosen ones, holy beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And that list goes on too. I just, I, I kept it that short for, for time's sake this morning. But Paul says it's not just turning away, it's turning to. It's embracing the preeminence of Christ in our lives because that's what he brings to our lives. I can't imagine anybody here who's a disciple of Jesus that doesn't want to be known for being a kind person. But I also can't imagine that any of us who are adults who have been Christians for a long time would say we've always been kind. (laughs) 
I can't imagine anybody who, who's a disciple of Jesus in here this morning saying, I really hope God never gives me a compassionate heart for anybody, right? And yet there are times when compassion is the thing that is hardest for us to find in our hearts, usually most often with the people whom we love the most. So Paul says the application is lifelong. It's getting your mind right with the theology of, of Jesus that has him as preeminent over all things in our life, that we begin to think that way. As we begin to think that way, then we will turn away from some things naturally, and we will turn to some things naturally. But let me tell you this as we begin to wrap up this morning. Learning, turning away, turning to, that's God's process in our lives, and it's a lifelong process. The day this process is over, you're going to be like this, and you're going to open your eyes. You know, that's Jesus standing over there, right? And you either just got hit by a bus, or you just had a heart attack, or what? but you're in heaven now, and that process is complete. There'll be a day when the preeminence of Jesus will be thorough and complete in your life. But until that day, it's a journey. And some of us are further in the journey, and others of us aren't quite as far in the journey. Some of us are just younger. You guys sitting right there. I can't believe you guys at your age are sitting on the front row. Thank you for doing that. I don't know who made you do it. I'm not sure why you did it, but thank you very much. But, but you guys, if you're disciples, have only been disciples for, at, at the most, a few years. Who's the oldest guy here? You the oldest? Will you? 12, who, 13, 14, 15, 14. I'm, uh, 14. I'm terribly sorry I, that I would say 12 in that moment. I, I apologize. <laughs> Well, immature 12-year-olds, come on now. Um, so you've only been, if you're disciples, you've only been disciples a little while. I'm 56. I've, I've been a believer since I was a young man, right? And I should be further along than I am. It's a process. So maybe I, I'm, I'm a little further than you guys, but we all have a ways to go, do we not? So I had, a, I had a great time over Christmas. I got to observe two young moms with their children in my house. And I'm, and I'm related to both of them. And, uh, and one of them has three children, my daughter-in-law, Liz, and has another one due in two months, in March. So she's got three kids, uh, eight, four, almost four, and, and two. And she normally knows where they are. And she keeps up with them pretty well. And mealtime, she'll get something out and make sure they've got something to eat. But if we're all sitting around, we're, we're putting the puzzle together, and one of them is missing, she doesn't jump up and panic. She doesn't go, oh my gosh, where did Avery go? Because Avery's running around someplace. And when Avery wants something to eat or she wants some attention, she'll come back in the room from wherever she is. She doesn't worry about it. She doesn't get too upset about that. Why? Because she's been a mom for a little while, right? And then there's my daughter, Katie. And I love my daughter, Katie. And she's been a mom for three whole months. And it's astounding how much she knows after three months of being a mom. So I'm holding baby Mia one day, and, and, just, and she's three months old, and, I, and I, my hand's right under her chin, and all of a sudden her mouth drops, and she's got my, one of my knuckles in her mouth, right? She's three months old. What's she doing? She's kind of sucking on my knuckle, right? And we're playing a board game. We're hanging out, and she's sucking on my knuckle, and all of a sudden I feel this look from over here on this side of the table. I can feel it. I look over, and there's my daughter kind of staring at me. I said, yes. She goes, have you washed that hand? <laughs> and in Christ-like, humble fashion, I replied, never in my whole life. <laughs> my job is to introduce sins into your, or sins, introduce, introduce germs into your daughter's life so she can build up her immune system. So no, I've never washed my hand, Katie, in my entire life. The conversation actually went downhill from there, if you can believe it. <laughs> That actually got worse from that particular moment, right? Why, why is Katie kind of just a little bit on edge by that? Because she's a brand new mom, right? She'll, she'll get past that. She'll always care deeply for her children. Liz 
would die for any of her children. But the longer you're a parent, the more you kind of know, you know, they kind of get past the bumps and bruises and they kind of survive even if they eat a little bit of dirt sometimes or that sort of thing. You begin to grow in your understanding. And I want you to be encouraged on two fronts this morning. One, if, if you've been a Christian as long as me or longer and you're a little frustrated, yeah, we're not home yet. We're not done. God's got a long way to go with us in really teaching us the preeminence of Christ in a very practical way in our lives. So there's no room for arrogance, no room for pride, only humility, thankfulness, and asking that God would continue to fill us with this truth in our lives. But for those of you that are younger, you got a ways to go too. But God's faithful. He's going to grow us in our trust in him if we will embrace this truth of the preeminence of Christ. So the sermon this morning actually ends with a question. Is the preeminence of Jesus Christ a reality in my life? There's journeys, there's ups, there's down. We're going to dig through Colossians with the hope that as we dig into Christ, God will make this preeminence more a reality in each one of our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that the letter to the Colossians is not about how much harder we have to work and how nearly impossible it is to get God to love us because we just mess up so often. Thank you, the book of Colossians. This letter is about the God of the universe who has all power in his hands and uses that power to bring reconciliation, to bring grace, to bring forgiveness. And he calls us to rest in that preeminence, to trust it, to believe it, to make it the controlling influence in our lives. Lord Jesus, we're all on that journey uh, if, if we're trusting in you and believing in you. Maybe we're at the very first day of it. Maybe today's the day we're going to put our faith in, in you. We pray that you would embed this deeply in our hearts and our souls and our minds for your glory and for our good. We pray in your name. Amen.